Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, February 26th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Legal scholar and Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy uncovers the story of Mary Hamilton and her fight for equal rights. And now, enjoy the podcast. In the fall of 1951, a black woman in Greenville, Mississippi, made an appointment to see Hodding Carter, the editor of the Greenville Delta Democrat Times. She was the chair of the Negro section of a Red Cross campaign and the wife of a prominent local physician. She complained that the Times Democrat, like many newspapers in the South, degraded black women by withholding from them courtesy titles. While the newspaper conferred upon married white women the honorific title Mrs., it referred to married black women by either their unadorned names, Lucy Jones, or listed only the initials of their husbands if their first names could be learned. The complainant requested that in the event she figured into the newspaper's coverage, she should be either accorded a courtesy title denoting her status as a married woman, or she should receive no identification at all. Carter recognized the significance of the demand, noting that to bestow courtesy titles on Negroes would violate one of the longest-lasting of Deep South taboos. He appreciated that behind the request was the persistent long, unanswered demands that white people recognize that what the darker people of the world require and must get is a recognition of their right to human dignity. Although Carter acceded to the request, his deviation from custom provoked criticism from some whites who feared that giving in to any demands for racial reform would only encourage the making of additional demands. Many whites continued to withhold courtesy titles from blacks and to insist on calling Negroes by their first names no matter what the ages of the people addressed or the relationship between those people and the whites hailing them. Blacks resisted in various ways. Sometimes they referred to themselves only by their surnames to prevent whites from calling them by their first names. A variation was to use initials as opposed to full first names. Black journalists and other commentators protested against racially arrogant ways of addressing African Americans. In a courtroom in Etowah County, Alabama on June 25, 1963, Mary Hamilton elevated this protest to a higher level. An experienced organizer for the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, Hamilton faced charges stemming from an act of civil disobedience aimed at challenging segregation. The following exchange erupted between Hamilton, the state solicitor, 
and the presiding circuit court judge. Solicitor, what is your name, please? Witness, Miss Mary Hamilton. Solicitor, Mary, who were you arrested by? Witness, my name is Miss Hamilton. Please address me correctly. Solicitor, who were you arrested by, Mary? Witness, I will not answer your question until I am addressed correctly. Court, answer the question. Witness, I will not answer unless I am addressed correctly. Court, you are in contempt of this court and you were sentenced to five days in jail and a $50 fine. The prosecutor was not even pretending to treat Mary Hamilton equally before the law. He was openly consigning her to an inferior station that absolved him of any obligation to address her as he would address a similarly situated white person. By demanding to be addressed by her full formal name, Miss Mary Hamilton was resisting a form of racial oppression that was older and even more invidious than segregation. Hamilton's demand arose, her lawyers explained, from hearing the representative of the state persist in the custom of addressing all Negro witnesses by their first names, declining to call them Mr. or Mrs., or to use their surnames as he did with all white witnesses. By insisting that the state solicitor address her on the same terms as he addressed white witnesses, Hamilton joined a struggle over naming practices that reached back to when slaves hid names from masters and renamed themselves upon successfully escaping enslavement. Hamilton's case also highlights another front of racial contestation, norms of treatment in court. The state solicitor and circuit court judge were not belittling, demeaning, and harassing Hamilton in an amusement park or on a sidewalk or in a kitchen. That, of course, would have been bad, too. Racist disparagement is ugly wherever it arises. But it is particularly disturbing when practiced by officials in a courtroom, the place that ideally epitomizes equal justice before the law. The racist mistreatment that befell Hamilton in a courtroom was not an isolated occurrence. It was part of a long, ugly tradition. Representing the Scottsboro Boys, Samuel Leibowitz outraged white Alabamians in the 1930s when he interrupted a prosecutor's cross-examination to demand that the black witness be addressed in the same manner as white witnesses. In 1932, a young black communist named Angelo Herndon found himself on trial for his life in Atlanta, Georgia, for allegedly organizing an insurrection. A hostile witness referred to him as a nigger. Herndon's attorney, Benjamin Jefferson Davis, it's a New York personage, (laughs) representative of Harlem during the 1940s. Benjamin Jefferson Davis requested that the judge intervene. Davis, I object, Your Honor. The term nigger is objectionable, prejudicial, and insulting. The court, 
I don't know whether it is or not. However, I'll instruct the witness to call Herndon darky, which is a term of endearment. Black lawyers have had to endure all manner of racial disrespect. In some locales, white supremacists barred black lawyers from court altogether. In others, black lawyers were permitted to practice, but only by showing deference to the etiquette of segregation. For instance, examining witnesses from the black section of the courtroom rather than the white section. In 1906, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, two black attorneys, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins, had the temerity to seek Supreme Court review of a conviction involving a black man who had allegedly raped a white woman. When Justice John Marshall Harlan stayed the man's execution, a mob lynched him and let it be known that the same fate would befall his lawyers if they returned to their homes. Sixty years later, when Constance Baker Motley, another New Yorker, borough president of Manhattan, first black woman federal judge later on in life, Sixty years later, when Constance Baker Motley, a black woman, showed up in southern courtrooms representing clients who were challenging segregation, judges who were male chauvinists as well as white supremacists could hardly contain themselves. One, the notorious judge, Harold Cox, would ceremoniously turn his back to Motley when she addressed the court. In 1957, Congressman Charles C. Diggs, Jr. of Michigan, traveled to Sumner, Mississippi to see firsthand the trial of the two white men accused of murdering Emmett Till. The congressman encountered segregation in full bloom. Greeting a bevy of black reporters from across the country, the local sheriff cheerfully shouted, Hello, niggers, without a hint of self-consciousness. One of these reporters, James Hicks of the Amsterdam News, sought to secure a seat in the segregated courtroom for Representative Diggs. Professor Stephen J. Whitfield tells what happened next. Diggs had wired Judge Curtis J. Swango of the 17th Judicial District to ask whether he might attend the trial. The judge invited him down, but by the time the representative got inside the courtroom, The whites and and the blacks, spectators, had already taken up all the seats. Diggs gave his card to Hicks, who started to walk up to the judge's bench, but was accosted by a deputy who inquired, where are you going, nigger? When Hicks explained his mission and showed the deputy the card, another deputy was called over and told, this nigger said that there's a nigger outside who says he's a congressman. A nigger congressman? That's what this nigger said. And then the first deputy laughed at so blatant a contradiction in terms. But the sheriff was summoned and then told Hicks, I'll bring him in here, but I'm going to sit him at you nigger's table. And that is where the representative sat. Even beyond 1960, some judges continued to segregate courtrooms. One was Montgomery Circuit Judge Walter B. Jones, who presided over several landmark cases during the Second Reconstruction, including NAACP versus Alabama and New York Times versus Sullivan. Defiantly rejecting calls that he desist from drawing a color line in the courtroom, 
Judge Jones announced that there would be no integrated seating in his courtroom. He insisted that spectators would be seated according to their race, and this for the orderly administration of justice and the good of all people coming here lawfully. Elaborating, Judge Jones explained that he conducted his courtroom pursuant to the laws of Alabama and not the 14th Amendment to the federal Constitution. Because of his belief and knowledge that the white man's justice had blessed countless generations of whites and blacks alike. Increasingly, however, resistance to invidious discrimination in, its, in all of its many forms intensified everywhere, including in courthouses. On April 27, 1962, Herman A. Cooper, a judge of the traffic court in Richmond, Virginia, ordered Ford T. Johnson to sit in the spectator's section of the courtroom reserved for blacks. Johnson refused. He did not behave in a boisterous or abusive manner, but he did decline to sit where the judge told him to sit and instead remained standing, all the while insisting that he would continue to disobey the judge's command. Officials arrested Ford, who was subsequently convicted of contempt, a judgment that the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals termed plainly right. Before the federal Supreme Court, the state's attorney asserted that a judge is like a captain of a ship and his his rule is absolute unless in violation of the laws governing said judge. To be otherwise would lead to chaos in that the judge would be powerless to preserve order and decorum and dispense justice. The power of the judge should include the right to arrange seating as deemed most expeditious as a court may prohibit smoking in the court. Evidently, the state's attorney did not view court-ordered racial segregation in the courtroom as a violation of the laws governing judges. Six years after Brown versus Board of Education, the attorneys representing the Commonwealth of Virginia were prepared to defend the traffic judge's segregationist order and policy using the same idiom and logic as that which had long predated Brown. The separation of the races in that portion of the courtroom reserved for spectators has been a long-established practice, the lawyer said. The practice and custom has been and is for the purpose of preventing friction between the races and to preserve order and decorum in the courtroom and to assure the orderly administration of justice to all, regardless of race or color. Reversing the Virginia courts, the federal Supreme Court noted that Johnson's arrest and conviction rested entirely on the refusal to comply with the segregated seating requirements imposed in this particular courtroom. Such a conviction, the court declared, cannot stand, for it is no longer open to question that a state may not constitutionally require segregation of public facilities. When Mary Hamilton's attorneys petitioned the federal Supreme Court to review her conviction, the Alabama Attorney Attorney General averred that it would be an imposition to request that the court concern itself with an attempt to enforce social amenities and rules of etiquette. 
The court granted Hamilton's petition and summarily reversed the Supreme Court of Alabama without oral argument, pursuant to a procurium order that offered no explanation other than a citation to its ruling in the Johnson case. No one knows for sure why the court proceeded as it did. One possibility is that the court intuited the presence of a miscarriage of justice, but perceived as well that opened up to conventional plenary appellate review, the case might become distressingly messy. After all, Hamilton's charge of of, of racial discrimination was merely an allegation, although the state did not dispute it in opposing the Supreme, Supreme Court review. Moreover, the necessary power of judges to control courtrooms is subtle and fact-specific. Perhaps the justices were leery of getting caught in a legal quagmire, inimical to clear, broad rules that might be in tension with judicial supremacy. Another possibility is that the court was attempting to fight the worst excesses of the segregation regime, but in a low-key manner that would avoid rancorous controversy. Yet another theory is that by bypassing plenary treatment of certain controversies and deciding them peremptorily, the court was signaling that certain issues were settled and unworthy of further argument. On the other hand, there is merit to the critique that by resorting to summary dispositions, the Supreme Court withdrew from the arena in which lies the court's real strength, the arena of reason and documentation, and instead gave battle with the weapon that is its opponent's choice, the bare assertion. The public stood in need of education about the Jim Crow South's racist realities. And Hamilton was presented with rigor and comprehensiveness in the petition prepared by her legal representatives, by staff and cooperating attorneys with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. More specifically, her array of wonderful attorneys, Jack Greenberg, Norman Amaker, James Nabert III, Charles Jones Jr., and Oscar Adams Jr., They contended that it was no more the legitimate business of the state courts to maintain the racial caste system by using the contempt power in support of racially demeaning forms of addressing Negroes by public officials than it was the state's business to do the same by physical segregation. Hamilton's attorneys noted that the trial court had two choices, to compel the witness to answer by contempt or to require the prosecutor to cease his racial abuse. That the latter course would have been correct, they maintained, is dictated by well-accepted legal principles governing examination of witnesses, as well as by the 14th Amendment. It would have been useful for that legal point, alongside the petitioner's illuminating history and sociology of racist verbal disparagement, to have gained publicity through the medium of a full-blown Supreme Court opinion. In assessing the significance of Hamilton versus Alabama, there is a danger of trivialization that stems from minimizing symbolism as opposed to substance. Sometimes the former is disparaged as when observers deprecate as merely symbolic the right to buy a hamburger at a lunch counter, 
or to be addressed by one's full name in court. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was right. We live by symbols. Symbolism is central to human existence. It is bound up with the enjoyment of individual dignity. It was precisely because of the profound importance of symbolism that white supremacy's defenders and opponents were willing to stake so much on battles over racial etiquette. In demanding to be addressed on an equal basis as white witnesses, even at the cost of imprisonment, Mary Hamilton did nothing less than other heroes and heroines of the civil rights movement as they battled for the vote, adequate and equal educational resources, equal opportunity and employment, open housing, the right to express political dissent, and equality of treatment in public accommodations. Miss Mary Hamilton's insistence that Alabama authorities accord her due respect was a glorious moment of self-definition and collective uplift. It was a bold action that warrants our acknowledgement and our gratitude. Thank you. As an activist and participant in the Freedom Rides in 1961, did Mary Hamilton have preconceived intentions to take a stand in court? I don't know. Uh, I know a bit about Ms. Hamilton. By the way, she was a New Yorker (laughs) and um, went south like other idealistic uh, New Yorkers. But a lot is not known about her in particular. This particular case is mentioned in uh, the wonderful book about the history of of the Congress of Racial Equality by August Mayer and his uh, co-author, whose name I'm forgetting at at the moment. But I don't know a whole lot. I don't know a whole lot more about her and her her thinking. Uh, She was an experienced activist, so I doubt very seriously that she hadn't thought a bit about what she was going to do uh, if she found herself under arrest and if she found herself, uh, you know, in court. So I... You know, was this completely spontaneous? I don't know for sure, but I sort of doubt it. I think that people of her vintage, people of her situation, were um, had their antenna up and were ready to fight outcroppings of white supremacy wherever they found them. And so I suspect that uh, she was ready for this, as uh, were so many of the heroes and heroines of the Second Reconstruction. It's not as if it's not as if they took their stands unprepared. They were prepared. They had thought about it, 
and um, handle themselves accordingly. In what ways do you think the court needs to expand, still needs to expand equality and inclusion? You all don't have all might. I'll just say one thing on that one. I wish the Supreme Court of the United States would simply stop cutting back on the achievements of the second Reconstruction. Um, I mean, just a few years ago, the Supreme Court uh, took, took a big bite out of probably the single most important legislative achievement of the Second Reconstruction, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Unfortunately, unfortunately, um, you know, the Supreme Court from time to time makes good rulings. Uh, In particular, in the past, you know, in the past 10 Over the past decade, in particular with respect to sexual orientation, the Supreme Court, I think, has performed better, certainly has performed much better than I would ever ever thought. Um, With respect on the the racial end, however, um, you know, uh, many civil rights lawyers figure out ways to keep cases from getting to the Supreme Court because they have very little confidence in the Supreme Court and view it more as an adversary than a friend. So on the question of, you know, does the, what do you think the Supreme Court needs to do? The Supreme Court needs to develop more of a sensitivity to the work that remains to be done uh, in general in terms of expanding the domain of liberty and the domain of equality in the United States. Why is Mary Hamilton not as well known as Rosa Parks? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is that that could... I teach students, you know, the students that I teach are very well-educated young people between the ages of about 23 and 30. That's most of the students I teach. So I I teach at Harvard Law School. It's a very well-educated student. And in the past few years, uh, I've basically been teaching a course that is, it's, it's a course that's, really about the book that I'm writing. In fact, I'm writing the book through teaching the course. And one of the things that I do, one of the reasons why it's so useful, frankly, for me to teach this course and so useful for me to be in settings like this is because I ask people questions, people ask me questions, and I get a a sense of the audience that will be reading this book once it's done. And it's very interesting for me to see with these students, because these are very well-educated students. And I will often ask these students, have you heard of this person? Have you heard of this person? Now, people between the ages of about 23 and 30, if you're talking about the Second Reconstruction, they've heard of Martin Luther King Jr. 
they've heard of Rosa Parks. But then if I, you know, well, hmm, have you heard of A. Philip Randolph? Have you heard of Medgar Evers? Have you heard of, you know, have you heard of Ella Baker? The two that people have heard of are Rosa Parks and uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and that's great. They were wonderful people. But of course, one of the great things about the Second Reconstruction, one of the things, frankly, that's made this project, for me, just so joyful, is that there were many people who were doing really extraordinary things, and it's really too bad that more people don't know their names. And one of the things that I'm going to try to do with this book is make their names more well-known. So actually, my book will begin with this case. It's one of the reasons why I like the case. It's, it's, it's not a doctrinally complicated case. It's a very straightforward case. It's a sort of a case that you can... You'll remember this case. Very clear facts, very clear form of racial oppression, and also a striking position taken by this young person standing up for her rights. And so, you know, I I, I want people to know more about Mary Hamilton. Now, you, the, the questioner asked me about, you know, Rosa Parks. I often, in, in, in settings like this and in my class, because my students really push me on this substance versus symbolism issue. There were a number of students who, and they really pushed back on that. And I said, you know, there was much about the Second Reconstruction that was about symbolism. And I go to Rosa Parks. I say, you know, Rosa Parks on the bus, if you were so minded, you could say that her protest was a protest about symbolism. I mean, she's on the bus. So long as the bus is going to its destination, you could say, well, that was the substance. So long as the bus is going to the destination, what does it mean? What does it matter if you're at the front or in the middle or at the back, just so long as the bus takes you where you want to go? She was willing to go to jail over those seating arrangements. And, of course, the black community of Montgomery, Alabama, in one of the great collective actions in the history of the United States, indeed in the history of the world, black Montgomery was willing to walk for a year over that issue. Symbols matter. Do you think racial bias is less prevalent in the United States justice system today? Well, in certain ways, the answer is yes. In certain ways, the answer is absolutely yes. If you... You know, and and people ought to remember this. Um, There is a lot that is wrong 
in the United States of America. In fact, to say, I mean, wrong is, is too pallid a word. We suffer scars of injustice all around us, including racial injustice. And um, it's scandalous. But it's always important to ask, compared to what? Compared to 1950, compared to 1960, in the southern United States in 1960, in most cities in the southern United States in 1960, there were no, for instance, just, just to pick one, you know, no black police officers. In the few cities that did have black police officers, black police officers were not allowed to wear their uniforms to and from work. They were not allowed to arrest white people. So, you know, the actions that were taken by Miss Mary Hamilton, the actions that were taken by Rosa Parks, the actions that were taken by Martin Luther King Jr., the actions that were taken by... Bayard Rustin, the actions that were taken by Jack Greenberg, and one could go on and on and on. Did they make a difference? Yes, they made a difference. And it's important to recognize that. To move the world this much in a good direction is very difficult. Very difficult. And in the second Reconstruction, the world, through brave, intelligent, persistent action, was moved. And the fact of the matter is, we benefit from that movement. So, do we still face a huge problem? Yes. And by the way, there's certain ways, there's certain ways in which things are worse. So, for instance, with respect to this, you know, the scandalous situation we, in, uh, you know, goes under the rubric of mass incarceration, that's a post-reconstruction phenomenon, and it is quite terrible. But has there been change? Yeah, there's been change. There needs to be a lot more. What are some other examples in United States history of the court having discriminatory policies? How were they struck down? There are a bunch. I'll mention one that I find particularly scandalous. And and by the way, this scandal is one that hangs over us now. Here's a fact for you. A remarkable fact as far as I'm concerned. Here's one. Has there ever been a case in which a court has invalidated a punishment under the United States Constitution on 14th Amendment grounds. That is to say, has there ever been a case in which a federal court has said, no, that punishment is invalid because it was imposed in a racially discriminatory way? I know of no such case. That fact, does anybody doubt 
does anybody doubt that there are scores, that's scores, hundreds of such cases. Of course, the most terrifying and terrible example of that has to do with the administration of capital punishment. And in the 1980s, there was a case, McCleskey versus, McCleskey versus Alabama, the Supreme Court confronted that issue. And in a five to four opinion, the Supreme Court of the United States said, came to the conclusion that the administration of capital punishment in Georgia, even though statistics showed that a, a person who killed a white person in Georgia was four times more likely to be sentenced to death than a person who killed a black person. Supreme Court, five to four, said, nah, that's a striking correlation, but that doesn't show causation. The person who wrote that opinion was um, Lewis F. Powell. A few years later, Lewis F. Powell resigned from the Supreme Court, and after he had resigned, a reporter asked him, you know, gosh, looking back, is there one vote that you wish that you could change? McCleskey. Wish he had gotten that wisdom a little bit earlier. Could have saved some lives. But our administration of criminal justice, our administration of justice in general, but particularly our administration of criminal justice, many problems still still remain. Other questions? Do you think the second reconstruction is undertaught in public schools the same way the Civil War is? Yes! <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, not, just, not just in elementary schools, not just in middle schools, not just in high schools, in college, in our public education, just in general. And we've seen it. I mean, think, in the, think, think about it. Think, think about the last couple of years and the struggles people have had over memorials. And, you know, so you know, what's the meaning of the Confederate flag? Now, frankly, from my perspective, I think that there are, I, I, I'm a person, I know, I'm sure that, you know, opinions vary. I think that there are lots of various ways that the memorials can be handled. I don't think there's any one way that's the only way that memorials can sensibly be handled. I think they can be, I think there's a variety of ways they can be handled. The, the, the thing that I would insist upon is let's just know the truth about things. You know, I mean, how, how one, what one does after that, I, I, can, I can imagine people differing, but let's at least know the truth about things. You know, the idea the South did not secede because of, you know, slavery wasn't in the middle of it. Are you, come on. I'm from South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, born 1954. Read what South Carolina said. I mean, it was, there's no great mystery. You can, they published their articles of secession. You can read what South Carolina said. You can read what Mississippi said. You can read what Georgia said. They weren't hiding the ball. 
Just read it. So yes, we need to do a much better job of educating people about you know, the, the facts of life with regard to American history. What was the environment in the North at the time of Hamilton, specifically in segregated cities like Chicago? Excellent question. In the past 10 years, in the historiography of the Second Reconstruction, one of the main thrusts has been toward focusing attention on the North during the Second Reconstruction. So when people think about the Civil Rights Movement, they you know, immediately think of the you know, Selma, Birmingham, um, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, and good reason, good reason to focus there. At the same time, at the same time, there was a struggle going on New York City. I mean, New York City, 1964, a tremendous struggle going on. Philadelphia, the Second Reconstruction was not a regional struggle. It was a national struggle. And um, again, for for my purposes, one of the things that I'm trying to do uh, in my book is to point out that this truly was a national struggle at the very time that, you know, March on Washington, summer 1963. In summer of 1963, there was a tremendous fight going on in Philadelphia, not just Philadelphia, Mississippi, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, too. So this was a national struggle, as it remains a national struggle. Is the practice of addressing persons in the black church by their occupation, as we all do with doctors, lawyers, related to the struggle for diversity. I'm not, uh, to tell you the truth, I I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I will say that the question about modes of address, let let me say a little bit more about modes of address in the Second Reconstruction, in 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 the Civil Rights era. And this really strikes home for me. Because um, when I was growing up, one of the heroes in my household was Thurgood Marshall. And it was indicated I, I had the great pleasure of working for Thurgood Marshall in the 1983 Supreme Court term. But I heard about Thurgood Marshall growing up. And the reason I heard about Thurgood Marshall growing up has to do with my subject tonight. My, I'm from, like I said, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina. My father went to see Thurgood Marshall argue a case. Rice versus Elmore, 1948. It was the last of the white primary cases. My father went with a buddy, one of his buddies, to see Thurgood Marshall argue the case. Now, my father was not a lawyer, and he did not talk about the legal issues involved in the case. It was a, the legal issue involved in the case was a question of um, state action, but that, he didn't talk about that. The most memorable thing about the case for my father and the thing he talked about was the fact 
that the judges called Thurgood Marshall Mr. Marshall. He he talked about that all the time. That was a big, big, big deal that the judges called Thurgood Marshall Mr. Marshall. Mr. Civil Rights. And again, you know, that was 1948. Now, you know, again, in my classes, 1948, the students look at me like I'm talking about when the dinosaur roamed. <laughs> I'm looking out at this audience. Many of you remember 1948. It wasn't that long ago. It really wasn't. Uh, I tell the students, you know, you, you, 1948 was like that. It was like that. It was, a, it was, you know, yesterday. And yesterday, it was a big deal for a black man to be called Mr. Now, in those days, to get back to the question... A black physician would be called doctor, you know, Dr. Jones, if you were a black physician. Or if you were a black minister, you would be called Reverend so-and-so, but not Mr. And, you know, it still shows itself. It still shows itself. I, I know, you know, with... with I, I certainly know with... Uh, it showed itself with my parents and the way they, they would identify themselves. And, um, you know, when people sometimes go and, you know, you know, another civil rights leader, Montgomery, Alabama, the leading civil rights leader before the coming of Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., E.D. Nixon. Oh, well, you know, why E.D.? Are there still court cases of racial disparagement? Not so much. Not so much. Every now and again. But again, you know, it's... At the same time that we should appreciate the struggles with which we ought to be contending today, we ought to recognize... We ought to recognize change. That's an important thing. And many things that we take for granted today, we don't even think about. Don't even think about. At my law school, you get a good, you get a good, good legal education at my law school. You really do. And it's probably the case that I'd probably say 90% of the students that get a legal education at Harvard Law School encounter Title II of the 1964 Civil Rights Act maybe one day in their three years. And they take constitutional law and they're, you know, the interstate commerce clause and they, you know, read... Heart of Atlanta Motel, one day. Nobody in law schools, nobody, nobody talks about public accommodations, racial discrimination and public accommodations. Nobody talks.
about that. Nobody thinks about it, talks about it. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. There was a huge struggle. In 1964, by the way, I hadn't even thought of this, but now that I'm thinking about it, symbolism, where you got your hamburger, where you could sit down. Title II of the 1964 Civil Rights Act was the most controversial part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That was the public accommodations provision. It prompted the longest filibuster in the history of the United States Senate. There are people who died over Title II. Symbolism, we live by symbols. How did the press handle this decision? You know, the press, there was no, there wasn't much, you know, it, it didn't make the press much. There was a nice article about uh, Miss Mary Hamilton's case in Jet Magazine. There, in Jet Magazine, there was a nice, a nice article about it. Uh, but in the, in the, you know, the, the, the white newspapers, it didn't, it didn't get much, uh, it didn't get much, uh, it didn't get much, uh, attention. What kind of training did judges get vis-a-vis racial justice? On the job! <laughs> what kind of training should they get? That's a wonderful, they should. Um, and actually, I, I have to say that in various ways, uh, judges do, you know, judges do go to law schools. There is, uh, there are various, various historical societies put on programs. Um, there is an effort on the part of some judges to learn about a very important part of American life that will show up in their courtrooms. Back in those days, however, there wasn't much of a, uh, there wasn't much in the way of any sort of, you know, systematic training. And I wasn't kidding, by the way, you know, on-the-job training. People got on-the-job training. And, of course, some people's minds were completely closed to on-the-job training. On the other hand, there were some judges whose minds were open and whose minds were changed. I've mentioned this evening that I had the great pleasure of working for Thurgood Marshall. I did. Great man. I also had the pleasure of working for another judge who was a great person, a great judge. His name was Jay Skelly Wright. Jay Skelly Wright was from New Orleans, white man from New Orleans. Jay Skelly Wright was the first United States District Court judge to order the desegregation of a a big city school system. He ordered the desegregation of the New Orleans schools, Bush versus Orleans Parish. And he took on the political establishment in Louisiana doing it. 
there came a point during the Bush litigation in which J. Skelly Wright enjoined the whole of the Louisiana legislature in which he held the Attorney General of Louisiana in contempt of court. For his efforts, he had to be put under armed guard. And one of the things that's remarkable, that, 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 that in and of itself is pretty, you know, that, that's pretty remarkable. But there was something even more remarkable about Judge Wright. Um, I came across this about two years ago, because two years ago there was a, a, a wonderful uh, ceremony at Judge Wright's law school. Judge Wright went to the Loyola Law School in uh, New Orleans. And they construct, they, they uh, had a, a statute in front of the law school, Judge Wright. And they had a two-day conference about his career. And I had the good, I spoke at this and I, you know, I knew a good bit about Judge Wright, but for this purpose, dug a bit more. And I came across an interview that Judge Wright had with a uh, a British journalist in 1960. And in this interview, Judge Wright, the the, the interviewer asked Judge Wright, did he, you know, did he know black people and associate with black people? And Judge Wright said no. No, I don't, you know, I don't associate with black people. In fact, he went on to say that he felt a little bit funny when he would ever, you know, when he shook the hands of a black person. Then he went on, you know, he sounded very much like a person who had been socialized in the, you know, the Jim Crow South. Now, The thing about Judge Wright was he made this statement when he was a pretty big deal. I mean, he was a United States District Court judge. He'd been the United States attorney in New Orleans. You know, he's a very successful person in the legal, you know, in the legal world. He was a grown man, very mature man when he made that statement in 1960. And over the course of the next decade, Judge Wright became one of the most progressive, open-minded people. Certainly in the federal judiciary, and I would say in the United States of America, he was a person who learned and who grew during the Second Reconstruction, in part by what occurred in his courtrooms on the job training. You know, on the job training, you know, people learn. Sometimes people get better. Sometimes people get worse, but sometimes people get better. And Judge Wright was a person who got better, who got wiser. And, you know, it seems to me that that's worth remembering. That's worth remembering, too.
You discussed the decision to issue a procurium opinion in this case. Can you speak to the choice of the court to use procurium rulings post-Brown? That's a good question. You know, um, the Supreme Court of the United States, when, when people think about Brown versus Board of Education very often, they think Brown versus Board of Education, everything changed. Nah, it wasn't like that. In Brown versus Board of Education, Brown versus Board of Education was a very important case. I mean, in one, you know, on, on, on May 17th, 1954, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that states and the federal government could no longer, consistent with the federal constitution, either require or permit racial segregation in public primary or secondary schools. That's what it said. And by doing that, it struck down state laws in 20 states. That's no little thing. That's pretty big. But Brown versus Board of Education was speaking to schools. What about cemeteries? What about beaches? What about swimming pools? What about golf courses? What about, and we could just go on and on and on and on. In the years after Brown versus Board of Education, there were any number of struggles over all of those various domains. And the way that the Supreme Court handled its business after Brown versus Board of Education was to strike down segregation in all those domains, but not say much about it. And so if you take a look, the Supreme Court in the decade after Brown versus Board of Education really kept mum. Now, if somebody just openly defied the Supreme Court, like Governor Faubus did in Little Rock, Arkansas, then the Supreme Court would say something about it. But otherwise, the Supreme Court, in the midst, you know, facing this backlash, stayed mum. And that's what it did. It would issue these opinions. In fact, it didn't issue opinions. It would just simply say, reversed, or, you know, it would simply indicate that it was striking down segregation, but without saying very much. And different people have had different things to say about that. Like I indicated in my remarks, there's some people who are critical of the Supreme Court, in its way of proceeding. There are others who basically say, well, the Supreme Court was engaged in a delicate course of judicial statesmanship, and that's what the Supreme Court thought that it had to do in order to, you know, sort of keep its powder dry in uh, that tough period. I think that I am getting the hook I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.